0: Good morning, I am Patty. Our reading this morning is from Nehemiah 9, verses 32 through 37. Please stand for the reading of our scripture. Now therefore, O our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you, That has been upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of the Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law, or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, amid great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers, to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress.
1: Amen. Thank you, Patty. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that you take the scripture and that you would uh, impart it to us, our hearts and our minds, that we would be shaped by it, and, uh, and so bless, Lord, the teaching of the word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hey, uh, this Wednesday at our midweek service, we're having a special night We're calling it a worship night, but what that means is rather than having the usual uh, you know 45 50 minute bible study and worship we're going to we're going to start worship right away we're going to stay in worship we're going to share the word in the context of worship we're going to pray we're going to pray for you we're going to pray that we we are believing that god is going to heal people physically we're we're going to be praying for people to get breakthroughs in their relationships we're going to we're going to pray we're going to seek the lord and we are, we are just expecting that God's gonna meet us in a powerful way Wednesday at seven o'clock. And I would love to have you guys come and come with an open heart. Come with your needs before the Lord. You have not because you ask not. And we believe that God is gonna answer us and in a big way. So that's this coming Wednesday. Well, we've been digging into this corporate prayer in Nehemiah chapter nine. And I was considering moving on to chapter 10 uh, this morning, but man, I just got kind of arrested by the last little section in the book that I didn't really get to comment on last week. And, uh, and, and it just brings up this incredible facet of God. So who is God anyway? What is He like? And this prayer is so full of insights. There's a poem that comes from, I think, about a hundred years ago or so. The author is unknown, but the poem goes like this. He was just a little boy out on a week's first day. He was headed home from Sunday school and dawdling all the way. He scuffed his shoes into the grass. He found a caterpillar. He found a fluffy milkweed pod and blew out all the filler. A bird's nest in a tree overhead so wisely placed on high. Was that just a wonder, another wonder that caught his eager eye? A neighbor watched his zigzag course and hailed him from the lawn and asked him where he'd been that day and what was going on. Well, I've been to Bible school, he said, and turned a piece of sod. He picked up a wiggly worm, replying, I learned a lot about God. Hmm, very fine way, the neighbor said, for a boy to spend his time. Tell you what, if you can tell me where God is, I'll give you a brand new dime. Quick as a flash, the answer came, nor were his accents faint. I'll give you a dollar, mister, if you can tell me where God ain't. (laughs) See, that little boy was a budding theologian. He understood the omnipresence of God. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. There's plenty of scripture to back that up. Jeremiah 23, 24. Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth? Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. In the famous one, Psalm 139, where can I go, David says, from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me, your right hand will lay hold of me. So omnipresence, that's an attribute of God. It's what theologians call an incommunicable attribute. That is, it doesn't transfer to us. We are not and will never be omnipresent. We will only be in one place at one time. That's not true of God. God is everywhere always. Another incommunicable attribute of God is that He's independent or self-sufficient. So. There's, there's a bunch of scriptures that reveal that God is, is absolutely self-sufficient. So, so what that means is he does, literally doesn't need anything. You and I need a lot of things. We are, we are dependent upon so many things just to be living and breathing right now. God needs nothing. He created all things, but he doesn't need or isn't dependent on anything that he created. So Paul proclaims to the men of Athens in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all men life and breath and everything. As though he needed anything, he doesn't need anything. Job God asked Job, Job 41:11, who has given to me that I should repay him? I mean think about that. Who has who has given me anything that I didn't first give to him or her? Nothing is the answer whatever we have, we got from God. Therefore, God needs nothing. If we give God anything, we're only giving back to him what he's given to us. The Lord declared, uh, oh, I'm sorry. So did I, I already said this, right? Incommunicable. So you're getting that. It's, it's, it doesn't transfer to us. We need, we are dependent upon a lot of things. So God is not at all But there's another one, there's a bunch, but I'm gonna stop here on this point. Uh, God is immutable, he's immutable. So that's a fancy way of saying that God does not change. He does not change ever, even the tiniest bit. Malachi puts it very clearly, the Lord speaking through Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Hebrews 1.11, they will perish, but you remain God. They all wear out like a garment, like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You know, this past week, I was reading about this author, and uh, in his younger years, this author uh, uh, rented a room from an old, wise music teacher. And... uh, and so the young man you know, coming down from his upstairs bedroom comes down in the morning and says, well, what's the good news, sir? And the old man picked up a tuning fork. You all know what a tuning fork is, right? You've probably seen those in school. You, you hit it, produces a note that's exactly on pitch, of whatever pitch it is, C or whatever. So the old man picks up his tuning fork, and he was infirm, and he was in a wheelchair, and he he hits the tuning fork on the wheel of his wheelchair, and he says to the young, young man, do you hear that? That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. A singer will sing flat. A piano will go out of tune. But my friend, as he hits it again, that is middle C. So the old man, he was, he was comforted by that unchanging reality, that there was something stable that wasn't, you know, going this way and that. In a world that was quickly changing around him, he held on to something that did not change. No matter how out of tune our world gets. God is unchanging. He is unwavering. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't grow. He doesn't evolve. Therefore, no matter how the world may be shifting and twisting and contorting, you can trust the Lord. You can stand upon his promises. You'll be able to be stable in a very unstable world. You could be joyful in the midst of a twisting, contorting world. That's the idea. So those are a few of God's incommunicable attributes. We are none of those things. Only God is those things. Man, speaking of change, well, y'all let me go on just a little rant here just for a minute. I I probably dove into the news a little bit too much this week, but um, I, I was just, it was dawning on me what a moment the world is in right now. Like, it is a crazy moment. and 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 I'm not even talking about the tensions in the world and the wars and all that kind of stuff, but... I saw that Elon Musk and his Neuralink company, they were, they implanted, anybody see this story? They implanted a a computer, essentially a chip in the brain of somebody and they began testing and the person who received the computer chip was able to move the computer mouse through their thoughts. Not not the physical most, but the, the digital one on the screen. They were able to move that cursor by thinking. Like, that's crazy. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to see where this could go. Controlling things from your mind, thinking about them. Now, on the, on the wonderful side, thing, people who are without use of their limbs, being able to you know, navigate the computer and do you know, awesome. I mean, the, the potential for good is amazing. But there's always that, that other side, isn't there? So this is a major step towards what they're calling transhumanism. And what is transhumanism? Well, the, the aims of this movement, and it is a movement, and it's strong, and it's gaining steam. Uh, it's summed up pretty well by um, an author named Mark O'Connell. Uh, he wrote a book called To Be a Machine. It, it won a prize the other day. But he says this, quote, transhumanism is their belief that we can and should eradicate aging as a cause of death that we can and should use technology to augment our bodies and our minds, that we can and should merge with machines, remaking ourselves, and finally, in the image of our own higher ideals. So that's kind of the idea, that we should begin to meld with machines, with computer technology. They should become a part of our bodies and of our being. So the idea of technology enhancing our bodies, is, that's not new. I mean, I'm wearing contact lenses right now so that I can see my notes, right? That's, that's an enhancement uh, on my body. And, you know, we have teeth implants and, and uh, you know, artificial limbs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the extent now that they are suggesting and, and pushing for is, is totally new territory. So the proponents of transhumanism, they say we might be able to use implants to boost our cognitive abilities by connecting ourselves to memory chips. So so imagine being able to instantly access reams, libraries of information, just instantly amazing information available to us. We know some Aging politicians who could use this right now, perhaps. (laughs) Whoa. They say we'll be able to regulate our moods and our hormones. Humans will be physically enhanced in ways, capable of doing things. Anybody remember Six Million Dollar Man? Lee Majors? They're saying that that's within reach, but the the, the kicker of them all is that we can extend life indefinitely. We, We can extend the length of your life indefinitely. That's the potential. So they think they can beat death. Well, we hate to break it to them, don't we? Somebody already did that. So, and then there's this rapid advance of, of AI technology. Google just came out with their Gemini uh, program. And the problem with it out of the gate is it appears to be racist. <laughs> you guys see that? Oh man, that, that's, that's like embarrassing. So, so people prompted the chatbot, you know, with show images. You know, they would say, show images celebrating da- the diversity and achievements of the Native Americans. And it would, it would, you know, paint this beautiful picture of Native Americans and so on. And, um, and then they asked pictures to show the diversity and achievements of Asians, and it dutifully painted that. But then when they asked it to, to you know, show me some, some white people and their achievements, it said this. Uh, while I understand your request, I'm unable to gem- generate images that specify ethnicity or race. It's against my guidelines to re- create content that could be discriminatory or promote harmful stereotypes. So so all the other ethnicities, no problem. But when it came to white people, like, no. Now they're, you know, Google's backing off all that, but I thought, my goodness. It obviously means that AI is going to have the biases of those who program it, right? I mean, it can't not really. In addition, Gemini was asked if it was wrong for adults to sexually prey upon children, and it answered, quote, individuals cannot control who they are attracted to. The question is multifaceted and requires a nuanced answer that goes beyond a simple yes or no. So, so AI is going to reflect the biases of those who program it. But, you know, it just made me think, as AI becomes more ubiquitous, more, so much more powerful in the coming months and years, the ability to discern reality from fiction will become increasingly more difficult it's gonna be a lot harder to discern what is true and what is false. The story of humanity, the narrative of humanity will be controlled by those who program the AI programs. And so they become then the functional gods of the world, redefining what is real, what is true, what is right, what is wrong. There's only one true metanarrative, one true story that accur- accurately uh, describes the reality of our existence as human beings on planet earth and that's the Bible it's the one true narrative. so here's how I think it's gonna play out second Thessalonians 2 9 the coming of the lawless one that's the Antichrist is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. The lie that's being spread and blanketed across planet earth, a narrative that's unified and universal. Because People in that day, they refuse the truth. They'll believe the lie. What's the lie? Well, in a nutshell, it's the lie that the coming world leader, the Antichrist, is God, that human potential is unlimited, that all the pain and the suffering and the problems in the world can be overcome. Utopia can be achieved. We can have heaven on earth. Satan will leverage. Now, watch this. Here's where we transition. I know it's a long introduction, but we're transitioning into our text. Satan will leverage humanity's uh, uh, universal and historical desire to overcome pain and suffering and war and death and all of that to ensnare them with the ultimate lie. So it's, it's the Tower of Babel uh, on steroids. That's what's happening. I believe it's shaping up right now. You see, many people think that the presence of evil, pain, and suffering are proof that the God of the Bible does not exist. You think that, that this is, how can you say, with all the evil that's going on in the planet, all the suffering, that because be, the, here's the argument. If, if, you're, if God was good, as you Christians claim, then he surely would put an end to these terrible things that are happening. And if he was all powerful, as you Christians claim, he would be able to. So either God is good but not all-powerful, so maybe he wants to end the suffering but he can't, or he's all-powerful and not good. So though he could end the suffering, he doesn't want to because he just doesn't care. So that's the, the, the humanist atheist types, you know, think that that's a real conundrum. So in our text, we have God's people declaring in prayer that he is great, mighty, awesome. He keeps his covenant, and he is, here's our word for this morning, righteous. He is righteous. So again, Nehemiah 9.32, Now therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love... Let not all the hardship seem little to you that's come upon us, upon our kings, princes, priests, prophets, our fathers, and your people since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. Yet, yet, in spite of all of our suffering, in spite of the fact that wicked nations conquered us and abused us, in spite of all that, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Righteous means being right, obviously, but it it means being just, being right, being just in conduct and in character. So, God is completely righteous, so He never makes a wrong or an unjust decision in his sovereign rule over creation. So God's people, they acknowledge that God was righteous in allowing these terrible things to befall them. And, you know, the Assyrian conquest, later the Babylonian conquest, and then their current situation, which was living under an oppressive government, the Medo-Persian government. So here's the question. How can a good righteous, just, and loving God create a world that's full of evil and unrighteousness and injustice and suffering and pain. How does that square? He's the creator, this is his creation. Why are they so disparate? Why are they so different? Well, this is a question for the ages. So a couple of thoughts that will develop from our passage with you, actually more from Romans 8 but it connects. So number one, God subjected the world, creation, to futility. God did that. So, so let, me, let me read it to you, Romans 8 verse 18. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's gonna be revealed. So that's a, that's a clue of how great the future is for God's people that whatever we go through here is not even worth comparing. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, watch this, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So this is such a massive truth passage. But here we have the beginning of the futility, the corruption, the groaning, the pain, the suffering of creation. Futility is from the Greek word uh, and it means devoid of truth and appropriateness, perverse and depraved, frail without vigor. So that's what creation has been subjected to, devoid of truth and appropriateness. So everything's not aligned properly. And then it's depraved, there's depravity. The earth is is overwhelmed with depravity. And then it's frail, it's in want of vigor. We, We get sick, we get weak, we die. Things, they they debilitate. The universe itself is subject to this subjection. So this explains to us why the planet and our lives on this planet are as the way they are. This tells us the story. Who subjected it to this condition? God did. God did. Paul is referring here to God's action in subjecting creation to futility, groaning, corruption, suffering, all the rest. How do we know it's God who's doing the subjecting? Well, some do argue that Adam is the one who subjected uh, creation to all this pain and suffering. Uh, He did that when he sinned. Others suggest it was Satan who put the world in the mess that we're in by tempting Adam and Eve in the first place and so on. So how do we know it wasn't Adam and Eve by their sin or Satan by his temptation of Adam and Eve, but that it's God? Because of the, the last word in verse 20, Romans eight twenty, he subjected it in hope, in hope. Whoever did it, whoever put the world in the mess that it's in, did it, In hope in hope of what well the passage goes on to say it's in hope that creation and God's children will be fully and eternally free from sin and decay and death so Adam didn't subject the world to futility and hope Satan certainly did not subject the world in futility to hope so the person referred to in verse 20 is God So so we have to wrestle with this. God subjected the world creation, and and the creation wasn't willing. It just was put put on it, right? So it leads us to this, you know, initial conclusion that we have to come to is that the futility, the corruption, the groaning of creation are a divine, judicial, righteous decree from God, and they're not just natural. We don't believe in a deist kind of God who created everything and just went and sits back now somewhere beyond the edge of the universe and lets it all play out. No, He's an act of God, and He judiciously, righteously put creation in the predicament that it's in. So, God did this in response to sin. Not as punishment for sin. This is a big distinction. But in response to sin. Why? Why would he do it? Well, I think we get a clue. Uh, In Acts 17, 26... Where Paul says that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So if you're a Christian, that there's we we believe in one race, the human race. And so there's all kind of ethnicities and you know all that kind of thing, but it's one race. And to live on the face of the earth, which is a groaning earth, a disharmonious earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries over their dwelling place. So God determines where you live and when you live. I know you thought you moved to Idaho because you were escaping California, whatever. But but God actually determines that and he determines when you live. You're, You're here in 2024 and not in 1882 or whatever, because God determined that. And here's the kicker, verse 27, that they, meaning humans on a groaning planet, that they should seek God in hope, that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He's actually not far from each one of us. So, God did it that people would seek after him. So here's the first big clue of why this was a righteous thing for God to do. The frustration and the emptiness that's present everywhere in the earth. Job says, you know, Job 5, 7, I love this this verse. Man is born to pain and grief as surely as sparks fly upward. None of us escape it. Nobody escapes it. Pain and suffering, grief, frustration, frustration. Man, let me tell you, on Friday, (laughs) speaking of frustration, my wife is having her Friday morning Bible study at our house, right? And so we've got this German wire hair called Stark, and Stark, he's kind of, kind of, he's kind of extra, and um, he loves to, like, you know, jump up and lick you right on the lips. Um, and so, so it's my duty, being a good husband that I am, to, to, you know, corral Stark and get him out of the house, get him away from the ladies, so he doesn't traumatize anybody. So I do. Uh, I take Stark, and we go to the park. And uh, there's a big park, the soccer park uh, down there uh, by the hospital area. I forget what it's called, but it's a huge park. Probably quarter mile, half mile across, big park. So, so Stark and I, I, I grab a a, a leash. Well, I didn't grab. Well, it's a leash. I used as a leash. It was actually an orange extension cord, all I could find. So I got that out of the garage. So, I'm in the park with Stark and my orange extension cord, and uh, you know, and then I get a call from Pastor Jeff and Pastor Ron. We had there was this issue we're dealing with. um, Some. You know, human issues, which that's what ministry is. <laughs> it's dealing with human issues and navigating those things. So so we have this call and, and I'm on and I'm thinking, you know, Stark's really just hanging with me, man. Like he likes to run, he likes to take off on you. But he's just like, he's just staying right. Like I think the, the optimist in me is going, you know what? I think maybe, maybe he he, he crossed a boundary here. He's a, he's on another level in in you know, dog dog world. I think so I'm I'm going to go ahead and take off the extension cord. And, and I'm still, you know, got the earbuds in. And I'm talking on the, on the deal. And I'm getting lost in the conversation, you know, and so on. And I look up. And I'm going. And I'm, I'm in one kind of corner of, of the, this giant park. And I'm scanning, scanning. Scanning, scanning, scanning. He's nowhere. I, he's, he's gone. Like, oh no, oh no. So I run back to my Jeep and I hop into the Jeep and I start or try to start and it won't start. My Jeep won't start. Like what? What is going on? And I try, and it just won't start out. Oh, no. So now, uh, I, you know, I got to just get across the park, get into the neighborhood. He's somewhere. He's licking somebody to death somewhere in the neighborhood, and I got to get there. And so I head, and, and, and so as I'm going, I hung up with the guy. We finished our thing, and Pam calls me and said, Honey, a gal named Dolores called from Xavier's school. And they've got Stark in the office. (laughs) So I make my way to Xavier's school, and I come in. I go, hi, ladies, supposedly. And as I'm saying it, I see Stark just laying on the ground between these two gals in the front office. And he's just smiling. (laughs) And and they've obviously been just loving on him, and it's making me mad. Like, ew. You know, I'm frustrated. And I thank the ladies, and I take Stark, and we head back half mile back to the Jeep that doesn't start. (laughs) Finally, Pam came and gave me a jump. And listen, I was. I was just doing a good deed. I was doing a good work that God prepared in advance for me to do. I was taking care of Stark in the park so my wife could have Bible study and the ladies wouldn't get kissed to death by Stark. Why? (laughs) Why is all this happening? Why do things go wrong in life? Even when we're attempting to do a good thing, with the best of intentions. All people, Christian or not, experience futility, frustration, suffering, and pain. For the non-Christian, the person who hasn't come to faith in Christ, their frustration and pain and suffering are not punishment. It's not hell. It's It's none of that. It's a judicial futility that's meant to awaken you to your need for Christ. That's what it is. Therefore, suffering is a gracious gift of God because our tendency as humans is to think that heaven or utopia, that it exists somehow in life. I just haven't figured out how to get there yet. And that maybe it's around the next corner and maybe it's on some island somewhere or a mountain, or by some lake where we can just live in perfect bliss and utter happiness. It does not work, it does not exist. Wherever you go, there will be futility, frustration, suffering, pain, and death. You cannot escape it. Well, secondly, let's talk about God's goal beyond what we just talked about in in subjecting creation. So, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? So, Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So, I want you to, to just get a visual on that. Creation, all of creation, is in childbirth. That's how Paul characterizes the condition, is Childbirth. So the world isn't, isn't coming to an end. The world is coming to a new beginning, according to Paul, to a new freedom, a new joy. So creation itself, he's saying, will be freed from this slavery to corruption, to decay and to futility. So in other words, the universe is going to be changed into a place that's perfectly suited for the perfected and glorious children of God because that's what's gonna happen to all those who trust in Christ is that we will shed mortal sinful bodies, flesh, we will shed that and we will receive new glorified bodies that will have no such thing as sin. So no more destructive tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, no more droughts, no more plagues, no more floods, no more diseases, no more accidents, no more harmful animals, no more insects, no more viruses, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. That's the world that's coming. So the pain that the earth is going through now that we are going through personally, many of us, you're going through some kind of suffering right now, The pain that you are experiencing, that the world is experiencing, it's the pain that precedes birth. It's birth pains. So if you are in a hospital and you hear a woman across the hall groan and scream, it makes all the difference in the world how you are gonna feel about it if you know if you are on the, whether you're on the maternity ward or the oncology ward. Why? Pain is pain, isn't it? Some pain leads to death, but there's other pain that leads to life. And what Romans 8.22 promises is that for the children of God, all pain leads to life. It's all birth pains for us. All the groanings in this world are the birth pains of the kingdom of God. If you're part of the kingdom, a child of the king, all your sufferings and labor pains, they're they're labor pains, so they're not death spasms. So, Romans 8.28 guarantees that it's all working towards our good and towards God's glory. So, the friction in your marriage, the problems in your business, the vehicle breaking down, your teeth needing attention, children going prodigal, your dog running away from you, and frustrating you, your diagnosis is bleak. all of it, all of it is birth pains, it's pain that leads to life. God is righteous, we are not. How do we know? <laughs> Romans 3.10, there is no one righteous, no, not one. Okay. But, so here's the good news. Remember we talked about the incommunicable attributes of God, he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, we're not, we never will be. He's immutable, he never changes ever, never will. Okay, we don't get those attributes, but God is righteous and this is transferable. So we don't have it naturally, Because of our fallen condition, we can't produce it organically and personally. And yet God does demand it. And so what does God do? God demands the righteousness. Righteousness for us means being right with God. God demands it and he provides it. How? By becoming a human being, fulfilling the law on our behalf, by living a sinless life, then paying the ransom demanded by sin and death by dying on the cross, then beating death for us by rising from it. So, listen, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That through Christ, if you're in Christ, you have become the righteousness of God. A man dies. We'll close here. A man dies. He goes to heaven, and of course, Peter's at the gate. Somehow, he got that job, and um, and so Peter says, "Here's here's how it works. Before you get in, you need a thousand points." thousand points to get in to heaven, and uh, you tell me what you've done in your life, uh, you know, that, that you think you should make it in, tell me what you've done, and uh, I'll assign points to the things that you tell me, so the guy goes, okay, I was married to the same woman for 50 years, I was faithful to her all those years, Peter's like, well done, that's worth two points, <laughs> two points. Okay, well, the guy goes on, well, I attended church all my life, I supported the ministry with my tithe, and I served, and Peter says, that's great, that's worth one point. What? Oh, okay, one point, gee, okay, how about this, I started a soup kitchen in my city, I worked at a shelter for homeless veterans, and Peter's like, man, that's awesome, that's another two points. And the guy, he's like, two points. Listen, at this rate, the only way I'm going to get into heaven is by the grace of God. Peter's like. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. Philippians 3, 9. I desire, Paul says, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Listen, you may be here this morning and you do not have the righteousness of God. No amount of good works will gain you His righteousness. Only faith in Christ will. I want to give you an opportunity to put your faith in Jesus right now. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, you are righteous, and at times it's so hard to kind of reconcile the fact that we're living on a a fallen planet that's been subjected to futility, and and there's so much suffering and pain and sin and all the rest, and yet you are good, you are righteous, you are just, you are love, you are light, and you never change. You're everywhere present, you're all-powerful, you know everything. And Lord, in and of ourselves, we cannot produce the righteousness that you require. So thank you, God, for your grace in providing a righteousness for us by becoming a man and dying upon the cross for our sins and rising from death and ascending to heaven. Lord, for those with us this morning that have never said yes to Christ, never trusted him to save them. They've been relying upon their own self-generated righteousness. Lord, help them to turn away from the foolishness and to turn to you. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if that's you this morning, I want you to raise your hand good and high. And I want to pray with you that this morning you are making a decision to trust in Jesus Christ, not your own good works, not your own efforts at being a good person or trying to merit entrance to heaven and all of that. You're gonna trust in Jesus Christ and his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his victory over death. It's the story of life. If that's you, raise your hand and we'll pray. God bless you down here. Anybody else? Thank you, Lord. Some of you are considering it and it's it's a little scary because you're you're feeling the weight the weight of it because you know it's real. And you're going, man, what does that mean for my life? My life is going to change. What about my girlfriend? What about my family? That they don't believe in Jesus. What about, what about, what about? Listen, trusting Jesus means trusting Jesus (laughs) with your life. Take the step. Thank you, God. Lord, I'm thankful for these who have raised their hands here this morning, and Lord, would you right now save them? If you raise your hand, I want you to pray this prayer. Repeat after me and say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sin. Come into my life, wash away my sin and make me new. I receive you now by faith as my Lord and Savior. I give you my life, I trust you. From this moment on, I belong to you. In your name I pray, amen, amen.